Welcome to Renegade Files. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, broadcasting from Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. So this is our first official episode, episode number one, the Malmstrom Air Force Base UFO incident. Reports of unexplained objects in the skies have been part of the human experience for centuries. The amount of diversity among descriptions, photos, and events concerning UFOs is so varied that an enormous swath of cases could hardly be said to be related at all. Immense silent triangular craft seen over several days by thousands of people in the Phoenix Lights events. Small, silver, classic saucers seen by commercial airline pilots or official military reports of unaccounted for lights seen by patrols, but not by radar. Such wide variations beg the question, is there any single thread that connects even a few of these unexplained occurrences? While there may be no one aspect that links every UFO sighting across the decades, there is one curious connection that seems to arise in a number of the most intriguing cases, nuclear weapons. On this episode of Renegade Files, we delve into a UFO incident which features a nuclear weaponry installation as a central factor of the story. By the end of this episode, you may never look at the subjects of UFOs and the weapons of war quite the same. I'll share my conclusions and final thoughts on this case once I've given you all of the remarkable information I have gathered while researching the Malmstrom Air Force Base UFO Incident. When we look back at much of the information available through standard news stories and official documents obtained through the Freedom of Information Act, what we find are documented UFO sightings back to 1900 or so, with cases appearing on a somewhat regular, although randomly spaced out basis, as far as frequency of sightings. However, coinciding with the development, testing, and deployment of nuclear weapons, beginning with the Trinity test in New Mexico, 1945, we suddenly see a drastic increase in UFO reports across the globe, including some of the most famous events which occurred in New Mexico itself, where the testing occurred. It would seem that once we, as humans, advanced our technology into the nuclear age, then immediately used that technology to create the most powerful and destructive bombs possible, and promptly drop those bombs on our fellow man to stop them from dropping their lesser quality bombs on us or others, that those in charge of the UFOs took a sudden and increasingly active interest in not only the Earth, but our nuclear weapons program as well. Perhaps aliens said, as the late great Jim Mars put it, uh-oh, the kids found the matches. Malmstrom Air Force Base, 1967. At Malmstrom Air Force Base in Cascade County, Montana, in March of 1967, according to retired Air Force personnel, UFOs appeared and hovered over the missile launch control facilities. Now these are the silos where viable nuclear missiles are staged on standby. This was a Cold War, and the nuclear weapons arsenal was part of America's defense against the Russians, essentially. So what I'm going to read to you right now is the report written by Jim Klotz and Robert Salas. And these were two of the retired Air Force personnel who created the Maelstrom Air Force Base UFO Missile Incident Report. I'm going to go through the highlights of this. I'm not going to read it word by word, but a lot of it I will. And it basically outlines the events that took place at the Air Force Base with regard to UFOs and this case specifically. Now, a couple notes on this uh, document. 
This report was written, as I said, by Jim Klotz and Robert Salas, November 27, 1996. Now, that is 29 years after the events which occurred on March 16, 1967. The reason for the long gap is because these men were career Air Force officers and they waited until they retired to produce this report. My strategy for the podcast is to go over the report which details the events on March 16, 1967. And then I'm going to go over the U.S. Air Force declassified documents which outline the events in question. And specifically what we have here is a diary of the events that occurred at the Air Force Base on the dates in question. My hope is that by going through this UFO missile incident report and then lining up where those dates and what the official story is in the declassified documents, we can get some idea of exactly who is telling the truth here and a little clearer picture of exactly what happened on that day. So that's my intent. Now, before I read this report, there's a few terms that I want to go over and define so that we're not stumbling through definitions in the middle of the story. What we're dealing with here are Minutemen Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles. These are ICBMs. They're missiles that carry and deploy nuclear bombs. The way that these missiles work is that they are housed in essentially what we call a missile silo. The military refers to them as LFs or launch facilities. The missiles aren't right on top of the base. Why? Because they carry nuclear bombs on them and they're, it's touchy equipment. So typically they're, they're a few miles out away from like where the offices of the brass are. 20 miles, 15 miles, you know, those sort of things. Out away from town, away from where people are. They're housed in these 200 foot deep silos and the people who operate each missile are underground in a command center which is sort of like a pod. Another term that is used is the LCC, that means Launch Control Center. That's the capsule that the men are in underground. Uh, another term that we'll hear is LF, or Launch Facility. That's the general area where the maintenance crews and the operation personnel occupy offices and man computers and do whatever they do to maintain, test, operate, launch, hopefully not nuclear weapons. Each of these launch facilities houses more than one Minuteman intercontinental ballistic missile. And the multiple units or multiple missiles that carry nuclear weapons at these launch control centers are called a flight. So that's where the term comes from. It is a, it's several missiles that are controlled by one launch control facility. And the flights are given alpha phonetic names. So alpha flight, delta flight. Those refer to different launch control centers that operate several or multiple nuclear intercontinental ballistic missiles. The flights that we're concerned with in this particular case are Echo Flight and Oscar Flight. And I want you to remember those names. We're going to refer to them a couple times, but when we get to the declassified reports, those names become very important. So Echo Flight and Oscar Flight. So let's get into the report. I'm going to read straight from it, and I'll tell you when I'm paraphrasing and we're gonna skip around a little bit. We're just gonna hit the highlights. This is the story of an extraordinary event that happened in 1967 to US Air Force Strategic Air Command missile combat officers and other enlisted personnel, missileers assigned to operate, maintain, and protect the Minutemen Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, an essential part of America's Cold War strategic nuclear deterrent. 
This report presents an abbreviated version of the events of March 16, 1967. Jim Klotz and Robert Salas, November 27, 1996. Echo Flight. In central Montana, Thursday morning, March 16, 1967, Captain Eric Carlson and First Lieutenant Walt Fiegel, the Echo Flight Missile Combat Crew, were below ground in the E-Flight Launch Control Center, or LCC, also called the Capsule. The Echo Flight LCC was located between Winifred and Hilger, about 15 miles north of Lewiston, once again, central Montana. Missile maintenance crews and security teams were camped out at two of the launch facilities, having performed some work during the previous day, and they stayed there overnight. During the early morning hours, more than one report came in from security patrols and maintenance crews that they had seen UFOs. A UFO was reported directly above one of the Echo Flight launch facility silos. It turned out that at least one security policeman was so affected by this encounter that he never again returned to missile security duty. So I'm going to stop right there and just uh, clarify. What's going on here is that these launch facilities, like I said, are in a somewhat remote area. They're, they're a little bit away from the creature comforts of the base. And so on this particular night, maintenance crews and a security team were camped out at two of the launch facilities. They were there to do maintenance. They had worked on the facility during the day and they camped there overnight. This is not uncommon for the military to do. They're geared up to camp at a moment's notice. So it seems a little odd you know, in our modern sensibility or from a civilian point of view that maintenance crews would do something like that, camp out at a spot wh where they work during the day. But, the, you know, it, in this situation, it's completely normal. Back to the report. Around 8.30 a.m., Fiegel, the deputy crew commander, was briefing Carlson, the crew commander, on the flight status when an alarm horn sounded. One of the Minutemen missiles they supervised had gone off alert. In other words, become inoperable. It was one of these two sites where maintenance crews had camped out. Okay, upset, thinking that the maintenance personnel had failed to notify him as required by procedure, Fiegel immediately called the missile site. So, essentially, when the maintenance crews do certain tasks on the missiles, they will turn them off. It simply makes sense. However, they're supposed to notify the deputy crew commander and the crew commander uh, when they're going to do that. So you can see what happens here. So they're, they're, the deputy crew commander is briefing the crew commander on the flight status when an alarm goes off. He looks, he sees that one of the Minuteman missiles has become inoperable. It's shut down. Immediately he thinks, he knows guys are out there working on it. He knows they camped out, a maintenance crew is out there. The maintenance crew is also with a security team. Why? Because this is the Cold War and you're working on nuclear bombs in the middle of Montana. So they're going to have like security guys with them too. So you got the techs and you got the guys with the guns, right? So as soon as the alarm goes off, Deputy Crew Commander says, oh man, immediately his thought is, damn those guys, they shut one of these things off and they're supposed to tell me, they're giving me a heart attack with this alarm. So immediately he calls the missile site, back to the report. When Fiegel spoke with the on-site security guard, the security guard reported that they had not yet performed any maintenance that morning. He also stated that a UFO had been hovering over the site. Fiegel recalls thinking that the guard must have been drinking something. However, other missiles started to go offline in rapid succession. Within seconds, the entire flight of 10 ICBMs was down. All of the missiles reported a no-go condition. One by one, across the board, each missile had become inoperable. When the checklist procedure had been completed for each missile site, 
It was discovered that each of the missiles had gone off alert status due to a guidance and control system fault. Power had not been lost to the sites. The missiles simply were not operational because, for some unexplainable reason, each of their guidance and control systems had been turned off. At this point, two security alert teams, or strike teams, were dispatched from Echo to those sites where the maintenance crews were present. Fiegel had not informed these strike teams that one of the on-site guards had reported a UFO. So in other words, he sends security guys out there to see what the heck's going on. One of the missiles got shut down. He picks up the phone. He calls out there, hey, did you guys forget to tell me? They were like, wait, wait, sir, UFOs are hovering over the silos. And before he can say, what the hell have you been smoking? The second one goes down. The third one goes down. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. In rapid succession, all 10 of the missiles turned off. So that's that. He says, all right, he calls a security team, a strike team, basically like SWAT. He sends them out there, right? Feigl had not informed the strike teams that one of the onside guards had reported a UFO. So in other words, he's like, get out there, find out what's going on. But he just leaves out the part about the UFO. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to, he's going to let those guys ascertain the situation when they get there. That's their job. He doesn't want to unduly influence their perception before they even get there. So on arrival at the launch facility, the strike team reported back that a UFO had been seen hovering over each of the two sites by all of the maintenance and security personnel present at each site. So I'm going to repeat that. On arrival to the launch facility, the strike team reported back that UFOs had been seen hovering over each of the two sites by all of the maintenance personnel and all of the security personnel present at each site. Captain Don Crawford's crew relieved the Echo flight crew later that morning. Crawford recalls that both Carlson and Fiegel were still visibly shaken by whatever had occurred. Crawford also recalled that the maintenance crews worked on the missiles the entire day and late into that night during his shift to bring them all back online. Not only had missiles been lost to our deterrent forces, but they had remained out of service for an entire day. And this is directly from the report, too. Because of this unique incident, as an ex-missileer describes it, quote, all hell broke loose. And you can imagine, right? Among the many calls to and from the Echo Flight Launch Control Center was one to the crew commander of Oscar Flight, which links to the equally dramatic story of what happened in another launch control center that same morning. Heading Oscar Flight. The Oscar Flight Launch Control Center was located a mile or two south of the town of Roy and about 20 miles southeast of the Echo Flight Launch Control Center. The following is as told by Robert Salas, who was the deputy crew commander in Oscar Flight that morning. So now I'm going to read from Robert Salas' direct testimony. My recollection is that I was on duty as a deputy missile combat crew commander below ground in the LCC during the morning hours of 16 March 1967. Outside, above the subterranean capsule, it was a typically clear, cold Montana night sky. There were a few inches of snow on the ground. Where we were, there were no city lights to detract from the spectacular array of stars, and it was not uncommon to see shooting stars. Montana isn't called Big Sky Country for no reason. An airman on duty topside probably spent some of their time outside looking up at the stars. It was one of those airmen who first saw what at first appeared to be a star begin to zigzag across the sky. Then he saw another light do the same thing. At this time, it was larger and closer. He asked his flight security controller, the officer in charge of the launch control center site security, to come back and take a look. 
They both stood there watching the lights streak directly above them, stop, change direction at high speed, and return overhead. The security officer ran into the building and phoned me at my station in the underground capsule. He reported to me that they had been seeing lights making strange maneuvers over the facility and that they were not aircraft. I replied, great, just keep on watching them and let me know if they get any closer. I did not take this report seriously and directed him to report back if anything more significant happened. At the time, I believed this first call to be a joke. Still, that sort of behavior was definitely out of character for air security policemen, whose communication with us were usually very professional. A few minutes later, the security NCO called again. This time, he was clearly frightened, and he was shouting his words. Sir, there's one hovering outside the front gate. One? A UFO is just sitting there. We're all just looking at it. What do you want us to do? What does it look like? I can't really describe it. It's glowing red. What are we supposed to do? Make sure the site's secure, and I'll phone the command post. Sir, I have to go now. One of the guys just got injured. Before I could ask about the injury, he was off the line. I immediately went over to my commander, Lieutenant Fred Mewald, who was on a scheduled sleep period. I woke him and began to brief him about the phone calls and what was going on topside. In the middle of this conversation, we both heard the first alarm klaxon resound through the confined space of the capsule, and both immediately looked over at the panel of annunciator lights at the commander's station. A no-go light and two red security lights were lit, indicating problems at one of our missile sites. Fred jumped up to query the system to determine the cause of the problem. Before he could do so, another alarm went off at another site, and then another and another simultaneously. Within the next few seconds, we had lost six to eight missiles to a no-go condition. After reporting this incident to the command post, I phoned my security guard. He said that the man who had approached the UFO had not been injured seriously, but he was being evacuated by helicopter to the base. Once topside, I spoke directly with the security guard about the UFOs. He added that the UFO had a red glow and appeared to be saucer-shaped. He repeated that it had been immediately outside the front gate, hovering silently. We sent a security patrol to check our launch facility after the shutdown, and they reported sighting another UFO during that patrol. They also lost radio contact with our site immediately after reporting the UFO. When we were relieved by our scheduled replacement crew later that morning, the missiles had still not been brought online by on-site maintenance teams. Again, UFOs had been sighted by security personnel at or about the time Minutemen strategic missiles were shut down. The Investigation An in-depth post-incident investigation of the E-Flight incident was undertaken. Full-scale on-site and laboratory tests at the Boeing Company's Seattle plant were conducted. Declassified strategic missile wing documents and interviews with ex-Boeing engineers who conducted tests following the Echo Flight incident investigation confirm that no cause for the missile shutdowns was ever found. Robert Kaminsky was the Boeing Company engineer team leader for this investigation. Kaminsky stated that after all tests were done, quote, there were no significant failures, engineering data or findings that would explain how 10 missiles were knocked off alert, and there was no technical explanation that could explain the event. The most that could be done was to reproduce the effects by introducing a 10-volt pulse onto a data line. Another Boeing company engineer on the team, Robert Reigert, came up with this pulse that repeated the shutdown effects 80% of the time, but only when directly injected at the logic coupler. No explanation could be found for a source of such a pulse or noise occurring in the field and getting inside the shielded missile system equipment. Others on the engineering team checked for other possibilities. Lightning and problems in the commercial power system were acquitted as the source of the problem. William Dutton, another Boeing company engineer, 
checked commercial power interruptions and transients, and stated, quote, no anomalies were found in this area. Several military activities and other engineering firms participated in the investigation, but no cause for the shutdowns was ever found, despite extensive and concentrated effort. One conclusion was that the only way a pulse or noise could be sent in from outside the shielding system was through an electromagnetic pulse from an unknown source. The technology of the day made generating an electromagnetic pulse of sufficient magnitude to enter the shielded system a very difficult proposition, requiring large, heavy, bulky equipment. The source of the missile shutdowns remains a mystery to this day. So that's basically the meat of the report. I'm going to skip ahead to the summary under the heading National Security. They say, during the events of that morning in 1967, UFOs were sighted by security personnel at the Oscar Flight LLC and at one Oscar Flight launch facility, and by other security and maintenance personnel at Echo Flight launch facilities. These sightings were reported separately to the capsule crews at both launch control centers at or about the same time Minutemen strategic missiles shut down at both sites. The U.S. Air Force has confirmed that all missiles shut down within seconds of each other and that no cause for this shutdown could be found. For many years, the Air Force has maintained that no reported UFO incident has ever affected national security. It is established fact that a large number of Air Force personnel reported sighting UFOs at the time many of our strategic missiles became unlaunchable. The incidents described above clearly had national security implications. In one previously classified message, SAC headquarters described the E-Flight incident as loss of strategic alert of all 10 missiles within 10 seconds of each other for no apparent reason and a cause for grave concern to SAC headquarters. There is a great discrepancy between the United States Air Force's public position relative to UFOs and national security and the established facts of this case. We hope that the Secretary of the Air Force will search for, declassify, and release all information on this case. And this is the end of the report by Robert Salas and Jim Klotz, written November 27, 1996, concerning the Maelstrom Air Force Base UFO missile incident, which occurred on March 16, 1967. So having gone through the report generated by Jim Klotz and Robert Salas that includes not only their testimony but reported testimony of the security strike teams as well as uh, maintenance crew and officials and security at the Echo Flight and Oscar Flight launch facilities and launch control centers regarding the UFO incident, um, that document gives a pretty good account of what all of the witnesses there say occurred. And as you go through it, you see that they all basically say the same thing, that UFOs were seen over the installations and simultaneously multiple missiles, 10 or so at each launch facility, were taken offline. And a subsequent investigation determined that there was no known cause for those. So it wasn't like elec the electricity went out or something. So now what we're going to do is go into the U.S. Air Force declassified documents. These were obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request. And I'm going to go over these. First of all, I'm just going to describe what they are. What I have here is a U.S. Air Force declassification release letter. So this is the cover letter for the release documents that are included. And the release documents consist of um, the 341st Mission Support Squadron 
strategic missile wing unit history. So this is like a diary of what is going on on these specific days at the base, the days in question, I guess. Or at least these are the dates where either the specific events of the UFO sighting or the ensuing investigation were referenced in the material. So what I have here is the declassification release letter, the unit history cover page, and then page 32, page 33, page 38 of the unit history, and then a declassified strategic air command message regarding the situation. Now, anytime I can get my hands on some grainy scans of top secret government info that has markings and black redactions and stamps and all that jazz, just, just, that's just, I'm just in my element, you know. It's just fun, it's cool to look through and to try to decipher. But what we're going to see is that there's some very telling information in these documents. So I'm going to go through them and as before, I'm not going to give you the word by word. I'm going to go through the highlights. I'm going to give you what's important just so we get a feeling of what these documents are and how they're written. So this comes from the, I'm going to go in order. This is the U.S. Air Force declassification release letter. So this is the letter that was sent to the person who requested the information. And that person's name and partial address is at the top of the document. I'm not going to read that because it's a matter of public record, but it's also not really relevant to the case who, who initially requested these documents. We're going to leave that person out of it. It's not, he's not one of the key players that are mentioned in the report, so we're just going to, we're going to respect his privacy. At the same time, I'm going to read the, the letter and then who it's from and sort of give you a, a tone of what's going on here. Then we're going to go into the uh, the cover page, which there's really not much there, just sort of a description of it. And then I'm going to go into those pages of unit history. We're going to pull out of there the relevant parts. So, from the U.S. Air Force declassification release letter from the 341st Mission Support Squadron, 3073rd Street North, Malmstrom Air Force Base, Montana, 59402. In response to your original request of March 1st, 1995, regarding an incident on or about 25 March 1967, a further search has located the Malmstrom Air Force Base history form from that time. The attached package, after a line-by-line -line review, has been totally declassified. The records are released under the Freedom of Information Act, FOIA 5, USC 532. We waived the fee. Sincerely, Kurt E. Copeland, Captain, U.S. Air Force, Chief Base Information Management. So this is the Chief of Base Information Management. In other words, he's the, he's the record keeper, the, the person in charge of communication at the Air Force Base at the time. Now, right away, there's something that I want to point out here. What this says, and it's very, it's very carefully worded, it says, the attached package, after a line-by-line -line review, has been totally declassified. And that's all good and well. However, as I mentioned before, what we have here are the two cover letters, and then we have the unit history, and what we have is page 32, page 33, page 34, and then page 38. So we don't know what's contained in page 35, 36, or 37 because they're not included in this package. 
What the letter or the cover letter says is the attached package has been totally declassified. Not every single word of all the documents because there's parts missing. However, it's also likely since we don't have page 1 through 32 and that we don't have page 38 until the present day that those pages aren't relevant and it is possible. So we'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say that what's here is everything that has to do with the events as they say in the cover letter an incident on or about 25 March 1967. So we're going to go from there. And I guess it could be read that it was sort of a courtesy that they waived the fee. So apparently there's some fee associated with the Freedom of Information Act request to generate these reports and that this uh, chief of base information management, uh, Captain Kirk Copeland, was nice enough to not charge them the fee. So let's consider it. Moving on, we come to the cover page titled Declassified 341st Strategic Missile Wing Unit History Cover Page. Now, just to describe what this is, it, it, looks, it looks sort of like the cover page to a report. It has several stamps on it. One of them is P, the initials PRC, and that's in two different places. I'm not sure what that means. Another stamp says, Document Declassified Per... H-Q-A-F-S-P-C-D-O-H-N, 27, April 1995, and O-O-A-L-C-L-M-E, 27, July 95. So, declassified. Handwritten at the top in the center says, this excerpt is, and then there's a big block of text, and it's been redacted. It's black magic marker. Under that are two more lines of something that isn't part of the type document. It's a uh, something that was stamped on it, that too has been blacked out. And then we see 341st Strategic Missile Wing and 341st Combat Support Group, HQ, SAC, DX, 673922, unclassified title, and the UN has been sort of crossed out. And then there's a date, and then it says assigned to, and then there's some other written notes on the side that have been redacted and then we have the note 15th Air Force Strategic Air Command permanently stationed at Malmstrom Air Force Base Great Falls Montana and that's about it then there's a paragraph which says this document was prepared by David E. Gamble wing historian under the supervision of the wing information officer and and it goes on to say you know basically who prepared the report and when and why and there is a big hand-drawn X through it. I don't know what that symbolizes or what that means, but I guess it means that I don't know why they would cross that out. It just looks unusual. And then it says approved by David B. Gamble, the historian, um, and John W. Carroll, colonel, uh, wing commander. That's essentially it on the cover page. It, it, looks, it looks a lot more dramatic, and if anyone wants to see it, I'll, I'll put links to it in the show notes um, so that's basically the cover page moving on to the unit history page 32 at the top of this page we have a reference the first paragraph says project how now service star the testing of mark 5 re-entry vehicles by higher headquarters for effectiveness malmstrom sent the last vehicle in the program for the base during the quarter this ended the program at malmstrom a walkthrough inspection of the HF hardened antenna at Maelstrom was conducted during February by Boeing and SATF personnel. The antennas were already equipped 
in the launch facilities, but were not in working order. The walkthrough inspection had an average of 40 discrepancies per site. Boeing Company has not set any official date for an operational antenna to be demonstrated. The estimated date for the operational antennas was set for early July 67. At that time, maintenance will begin on correcting the discrepancies at the sites. So this is just history of some maintenance that they're doing, some problems they had with an antenna, and the boys from Boeing came down and checked it out, and they're going to fix it, but they haven't told them when. That's, you know, the, this is just business as usual, right, through th these first two paragraphs. Paragraph 3, 4, and 5 on page 32 contain the first mention of what the declassified report calls the echo flight incident. So I'm going to read those paragraphs right now. This would be paragraph three. The following is the investigation of the echo flight incident and the results. On 15 March 1967 at 08.45, all sites in Echo Flight Malmstrom Air Force Base shut down with no-go indication of channels 9 and 12 on voice reporting signal assemb assembly, VRSA. All launch facilities in E-Flight lost strategic alert nearly simultaneously. No other wing configuration lost strategic alert at that time. Guidance and control channel 50 dump data was collected from E7 facility and E8 facility and all 10 sites were then returned and at that point the, the sentence is cut off and it's impossible to read um, to strategic alert without any of equipment inspection something like that it's hard to read so the the gist of it is all sites in echo flight simultaneously shut down the guidance and control channel so that's that's essentially page 32 so that's all that's really there when we move on to page 33 we see at the top of this document sites were reported to have been subject to a normal controlled shutdown and we know that that's true as part of the maintenance and it would have been a normal controlled shutdown but that's not what happened uh, at echo flight and oscar flight the only then the second paragraph on page 33 says, the only unusual launch facility events noted were the failure of the secondary door actuary motor L launch facility E2 and the intermittent operation of the diesel generator at launch facility E8. Technical analysis division personnel inspected for loose cable connections at the electro surge arrestor for any faults and noted no unusual discrepancies. So this is just more and I'm not going to read every word it's engineering analysis of the of these electrical problems it says at the end they decided to send a task group to Malmstrom for study of the incident at echo flight because the problem pertained particularly to wing one so basically what we have on page 33 is a description of the fact that they were sending technicians out to do the routine maintenance at the sites then when we move to the declassified document page 34 a preliminary analysis was made of the fall isolator test tape, the FITT, from launch facility D7 and E8. Targeting support was scheduled for GNC channel 50 data dump at LFs E2 and E9, which, although returned to alert, were still felt to possess useful data. The investigation was held in suspense until the arrival of the OOAMA team on 18 March 1967. Echo flight incident was approached in four ways in the investigation. A. Review of events on or near 16 March 67 
and of flight configuration. B, investigation and, where possible, elimination of circumstances which may have been responsible for the incident. C, investigation of means of causing the results which were noted at the time of shutdown. D, investigation of similar events. In reviewing the events of the incident, the LCC crew was questioned by Wing Maintenance Evaluation Team and Boeing Company personnel on 16 March 67. So that's all that we have on page 34. So basically, the echo flight incident, as they call it, was approached in four ways in the, in the investigation, as they say, A, B, C, D. Review of the events, investigation, and where impossible, elimination of the circumstance which, which caused it, investigation of the means of causing the result, so like, how did it happen, and then investigation of similar events, I guess, if there were any. In reviewing the events of the incident, the crew was questioned by the maintenance team and by uh, Boeing. So that's essentially page 34. Here is where we skip from 34 to 38. And this is where we, this is where it gets interesting, okay? I want you to pay close attention. I want you to remember that what we're dealing with here are sites of UFOs over Echo Flight and over Oscar Flight from the unit history page 38 of the declassified documents. The first paragraph describes their summary of the investigation into what could have possibly caused the missiles to go offline. Reading from the document, the only possible means that could be identified by the team involved a situation in which a coupler self-test command occurred along with a partial reset within the coupler. This could feasibly cause a Versa 9 and 12 indication. This was also quite remote for all 10 couplers would have to have been partially reset in the same manner. So to summarize what that paragraph says, the only possible means that they could identify, that the team could identify, that, that could have shut down all 10 missiles at once, involved a situation in which a coupler self-test command, so that's a self-test command in the computer regarding the hardware, would have occurred at the same time as a partial reset within the coupler itself. So, okay, I am not a missile technician. I can only infer what I know about computers, and coupler is where one thing hooks to another, and I can assume that this is, this is some piece of hardware where a computer hooks to the missile, and what they're saying is that the, or, or some internal component where one part of the missile control connects to another, so that if a coupler self-test command ran, at the same time that there was a partial reset within the coupler, that that could have conceivably caused the error that they, that they experienced. However, they go on to say in the very next sentence, this was also quite remote, for all 10 couplers would have to have been partially reset in the same manner. So what they're saying is, this is the only thing that we could come up with. If there was a self-test that happened at the time that there was a partial reset within another component, and if those two things happened at the same time, then that could have caused the missile to go offline. But they, they, they admit in the next sentence that it was remote, meaning not likely, that all 10 couplers would have had to been partially reset in the same manner at the same time that a self-test command occurred. So the only thing they could come up with they're, they're admitting that it's probably not likely. The next paragraph says, Further studies of this problem will be accomplished at the contractor's facility since a full engineering investigation is not feasible at this level. Next paragraph. In the researching of other possibilities, weather was ruled out as a contributing factor to the incident. 
A check with communications maintenance verified that there was no unusual activity with EW01 or EW02 at the time of the incident. So I'm not sure what those uh, alphabet soups stand for. But whatever it is, there was no unusual event there. So the next paragraph, rumors of, <laughs> and here we go. This is, the, this is the meat. This is where the rubber meets the road right here. Straight from the declassified document. Page 38, paragraph one, paragraph one, two, three, four. Page 38, paragraph five. Rumors of unidentified flying objects around the area of echo flight during the time of fault were disproven. So right away, that's pretty passive voice. It doesn't say disproven how, it doesn't say by whom, it doesn't say in what manner, it doesn't offer any explanation. It's just a glossing over of the fact by saying that it was disproven. It's political, passive voice. It's, it's Bill Clinton at his finest, right there. Rumors of unidentified flying objects around the area of echo flight during the time of fault were disproven. End of story. The next sentence says, a mobile strike team, which had checked all November flight's launch facilities on the morning of 16 March 1967, were questioned and stated that no unusual activity or sightings were observed. And then it goes on to say, the radar squadron at Malmstrom Air Force Base gave a negative report on any radar or atmospheric interference problems related to echo flight. And that's essentially the end of the declassified documents right there, uh, um, and aside from the Strategic Air Command message, which we will go into after this. But I just want to revisit those sentences. So the those two sentences are the only sentences in this entire document that directly address the situation or as they call the incident and what they say are completely inconclusive and and downright misleading so i want you to go back and remember we're talking about oscar flight and echo flight so listen to these two sentences again rumors of unidentified flying objects around the area of echo flight during the time of the fall were disproven the next sentence says, a mobile strike team which had checked all November flight's launch facilities on the morning of 16 March 67 were questioned and stated that no unusual activity or sightings were observed. Well, that's very convenient because in that sentence, they reference November flight. And they say the strike team that we sent a November flight said no unusual activity or sightings were observed. N obviously, neither by them nor anyone on the ground. But that November flight is not the flight that we're concerned with. No one ever said that UFOs were over there. All that this report is saying is that the guys who went to November flight said nothing was there. And in my research, the best I could figure out, November flight is 150.7 miles from Malmstrom Air Force Base. So, <laughs> you know, it is quite possible that um, a launch facility 150 miles away where they sent a security team didn't see the same... UFOs that the guys that were right there saw. So I don't know. It's This is a perfect example of the kind of half-truths that a lot of times you get with these government documents where they will say something that fits their narrative and just gloss over the fact that it's completely irrelevant information. It sounds like it's answering the question, but upon further scrutiny, it really isn't. So anyway, you can make of that what you will. Um, it just seems a little much to me. So here's the Strategic Air Command message. And this is typed in all caps. It is a 
pretty grainy document. It's hard to tell because it's sort of this uh, this military sort of specific format. It's got hundreds of abbreviations that I'm not going to try to decipher. Um, but I will go ahead, so, and I'll just give you an example. Info R-U-M-B-K-N-A slash 15-A-F N-W-N-W-B-N-B-O-A slash 34-I-S-M-W Maelstrom Air Force Base R-U-F-M-B-A-A slash A-F-P-R-O Boeing D-U Seattle Wash R-U-V-J-A-B-A slash B-S-D-N-O-R-T-O-N-A-F-B G-A-L dot J-F-E-T I'm, I'm, ne I'm never going to go tr try to figure out what all that means. This is just some designations, and some of it's crossed out. Um, here's the part that I can read. It says, Subject, Loss of Strategic Alert, Echo Flight, Maelstrom. Reference, NY, Secret Message, DM7B62751, 17, March 67, same subject. All 10 missiles in Echo Flight at Maelstrom lost strategic alert within 10 seconds of each other. This incident occurred at 6845L on 16 March 67. As of this date, all missiles have been returned to Strat. Alert with no apparent difficulty. Investigation as to the cause of the incident is being conducted by Maelstrom. Two FITs have seen run through two missiles thus far. No conclusions have been drawn. There are indications that both computers in both G and C's were upset momentarily. Cause of the upset is not known at this time. All other significant information at this time is contained in the above reference message. For OOANA, the fact that no apparent reason for the loss of 10 missiles can be readily identified is cause for grave concern to this headquarters. We must have an in-depth analysis to determine cause and corrective action. We must know as quickly as possible what the impact is to the fleet, if any. Request your response be in keeping with the urgency of this problem. We, in turn, will provide our full cooperation and support. We have concurred in a Boeing request to send two engineers, and I'll leave out their names, to Maelstrom to collect first-hand knowledge of the problem for possible assistance in later analysis. Request cooperation of all concerned to provide them access to available information, i.e. crew commander's logs, entries, maintenance forms, interrogation of knowledgeable people, etc. Security clearances and date and time of arrival will be sent forth. The AFPRO by separate message. For 15AFOAMA has indicated by telecom that they are sending additional engineering support. Request your cooperation to ensure maximum results are obtained from this effort. And then it has the word secret, and that's been crossed out. And then it has the word group downgraded, and I can't read the rest of it, and all that's crossed out. And that's the end of the, of the declassified documents. So there you have it. So after researching this case and thinking that, you know, here we have two really pretty credible, in my opinion, um, sort of witnesses, Jim Klotz and Robert Salas, who waited 29 years to tell this story. They held on to it. They didn't say anything. Then th as soon as they could, after 29 years, they got together and they wrote this report. Now, 
that doesn't seem like someone who's looking for attention. And if it was if it was a story that they made up, it's hard to believe that they would get together 29 years later after they retired from the Air Force to write up some dramatic story just for attention or something. That, that, that's, that's beyond what I would imagine that these type of guys would do. And not only that, when you couple what they said with the very curt, short, sweet, and frankly misleading information in the declassified documents, it, it begs the question what exactly went on here. So I started thinking, are there any other sightings that would support this? You know, if there were UFOs flying around and, you know, there's people that live in that area, it's not it's not densely populated, but it is uh, it was populated at the time. And so in going through some of the original reports, I did find a section that indicates other sightings. And I'm going to read for you some of those right now. This is just sort of like the corroborating evidence. So under the category of other sightings, there are several. Here's the first. According to articles from the Great Falls Tribune newspaper on February 8, 1967, now that's just a little over a month before the incident at Echo Flight and Oscar Flight, Louis DeLon saw two strange objects in the sky which did not look like airplanes, and they glowed an orange and red color while he was driving east of Chester, Montana. A second sighting was um, 10 miles east of Chester, Jake Walkman was awakened by a bright light at his home. From his backyard, he sighted what he called a flying saucer-shaped object. George Kawanishi, a foreman for the Great Northern Railroad, saw a bright ball of light in the sky directly above the Chester train depot. And then the report says, These are but a few of the sightings which preceded the missile shutdown incidences later in March. And then here's another very interesting um, report uh, that I would file under other sightings. During the same period... According to Colonel Don Crawford, U.S. Air Force retired. So this is another retired Air Force colonel. A two-person strike team assigned to Echo Flight was performing a routine check of the missile launch facilities a few miles north of Lewiston, Montana. As they approached one of the facilities, an astonishing sight caused the driver to slam on his brakes. Stunned in amazement, they watched as about 300 feet ahead, a very large glowing object hovered silently over the launch facility. One of them picked up his VHF hand microphone and called then-Captain Don Crawford, who was the director on duty that evening. And this is a quote. Sir, you wouldn't believe what I'm looking at. He described what they were seeing. Crawford didn't believe him at first, but the young airman insisted he was telling the truth, his voice revealing his emotional state. Eventually, Crawford took him seriously enough to call the command post to report it. The officer on duty at the command post refused to accept the report and simply stated, we no longer record those kind of reports, indicating that he didn't want to hear about the UFO. Crawford, unsure of what to tell his shaken security guard, decided to give the guard his permission to fire his weapon at the object if it seemed hostile. So that's a, that's a classic American response, right? Shoot it. Thanks, sir, but I really don't think that would do any good. A few seconds later, the object silently flew away. There were sightings in the area before and after the missile shutdown, so incidents by military personnel and civilians. That's critical because it corroborates the evidence of Jim Klotz and Robert Salas, who drafted the original report, and also corroborates all of the people who they say reported seeing the same thing. So it's very interesting, to say the least. So there we have it. And now I can't wait to share my conclusions and final thoughts on this case with you. So you have tuned in to the very first Renegade Files. You've listened to this case all the way to this point. 
Now is the best time to subscribe and follow the show so you can know when the next episode comes out. If you like the show, please review and rate Renegade Files on iTunes, which helps us reach new listeners. So now's the time for me to give you my conclusions. One way to look at the Malmstrom case is this. Do you believe the enlisted men, the military security officers, the nuclear missile maintenance technicians, and the retired officers in charge of the launch facilities at Echo Flight and Oscar Flight, who all reported seeing UFOs over the base and over the missile silos at the same exact times that intercontinental ballistic missiles were disabled in a way that a full military and corporate investigation could not explain? Or do you believe two sentences typed by a base office clerk recording not only that day's events, but every day's events in what amounts to a clerical base diary written for general record keeping? In this specific case, the amount of evidence that support a genuine UFO event at Malmstrom Air Force Base in March of 1967 far outweighs the evidence to disprove it. The evidence for the case we have covered today in the lengthy testimony and reports of multiple sources. The evidence against it? Two sentences. One, the events were disproven, and two, a strike team sent to a facility 150 miles away didn't see any UFOs. That's pretty shaky evidence against the, uh, the, the preponderance of evidence for. With these two passive, vague, and irrelevant sentences, the U.S. Air Force dismissed the Malmstrom Air Force Base UFO incident, at least as far as the public record is concerned. So what do you think? Did UFOs fly over a nuclear weapon installation and temporarily disable all of the intercontinental ballistic missiles that were there? It sure seems like it. And I don't know if I could ever say 100% yes or no. However, if I were a betting man, I would put my money on, yes, this is a truly paranormal event. This is absolutely a documented, well-documented, well-laid-out sort of case for the fact that, yes, UFOs did visit Malmstrom Air Force Base, March 16, 1967, and interfere with the systems in a way that no one can explain. All right, that's my summary, that's my conclusion, and I hope you had a good time. Thank you for joining us on the very first episode of Renegade Files. Man, that was fun. Thank you so much for listening to Renegade Files, your personal portal for exploring paranormal events and unexplained mysteries. I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, Earth child.